Well, do you have joy? Are you a person that is full of joy? Are you currently enjoying your life right now? Would you test positive if somehow we could test your soul for the presence of joy this morning? Well, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 98. Psalm 98 encourages us to be a people full of joy in the present by reflecting on God's salvation in the past and by hoping in God's justice in the future. Look at Psalm 98, starting in verse 1, and notice the mention of salvation in each of the first three verses. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Well, from this first section, I'd like for us to reflect on God's salvation in three eras. First, from the Old Testament, let's consider God's salvation of Israel. Look at the terms used in these verses. Each one has rich history in Israel's meaning, in Israel's history. Marvelous things speak to his supernatural interventions. God uses this term in Exodus 3 to foretell of Israel's coming deliverance from slavery. His right hand and holy arm envisions God as a warrior who conquers Israel's enemies. Moses used this when composing his song of victory following the Exodus. His revealed righteousness in verse 2, that's the same righteousness that is counted to Abraham because of his faith in Genesis 15. And his steadfast love and faithfulness, that speaks of his covenant loyalty. When God renewed his covenant with Israel following the, the debacle of the golden calf, God proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God saved Israel. But should we as Christians celebrate the victories in Israel's past? I think we should. One reason is that in the church, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile have been broken down. Believing Gentiles have been grafted in to the true Israel. And when a person is saved and born into the people of God, we're given not only a new future, but also a new past. And we have uh, the ability to access a storehouse of new memories that we can recall and celebrate the goodness and faithfulness of God for the people of God. Another reason is that the very purpose of Israel's history was for the sake of the nations. Yes, God saved Israel, but it was for the sake of all peoples. Notice that verse 1 speaks of the Lord's salvation in Israel's past. And then verse 2 explains that through this, he made his salvation known to the nations. The same connection is present in verse 3. God remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel, and as a result, all the ends of the earth have seen God's salvation. And we know this is how God's work. This is how God works, don't we? If you start in Genesis, Abraham was chosen and blessed so that every family of the earth would be blessed through him. In Exodus, Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt so that the nations would know that there is none like the Lord in all the earth. In Deuteronomy, Israel was given the law 
so that the surrounding nations would see God's good and righteous rules in action. In Joshua, God dried up the Jordan River to let Israel pass into the promised land so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. In 1 Kings, we learn that the temple in Jerusalem was built so that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord's name and fear him. Isaiah summed up Israel's identity in that they were to be a light for the nations. More examples could be given, but the point is this, that God saves a particular people so that all peoples may know his salvation. And I think that's what's hinted at in the opening phrase there, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. One commentator imagined this conversation. Let's sing to the Lord a new song, cries the songwriter. Sure, what are the lyrics, we respond. Well, let's sing about the salvation and love and faithfulness of the Lord. Well, okay, but aren't those all old songs? Those are the words of all our great songs since Israel was redeemed from Egypt, learned the name of Yahweh at Sinai, saw his glory in the tabernacle, and experienced repeated acts of salvation at his hand. What makes this a new song? Well, it may be an old song for us, replies the psalmist, but it will be a new song among the nations, among all peoples. And we know from the perspective of the rest of the Bible that the focus of this new song centers on God's marvelous acts of salvation in Christ for sinners. Isaac Watts explained his psalms project this way. He said, The psalms ought to be rendered in such a manner as we have reason to believe David would have composed them if he had lived in our day. He would see frequent occasion to insert the cross of Christ in his song. He would often want to underline uh, the confession of his sins with the blood of the Lamb. If he were alive today, David would even describe the glories and the triumphs of Christ in long and flowing verse, even as Paul, whenever he mentions the name and honors of Christ, can hardly stop talking about them again and again. So let's do just that. Let's think about how does the New Testament portray Christ? The New Testament portrays Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Covenant promises. Jesus did marvelous things. Matthew recorded that uh, the crowds marveled at Jesus' miracle, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Jesus worked salvation. Peter, in Acts 4, he proclaimed there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus was the Lord's salvation made known. Paul told Titus that Jesus had brought salvation to all people. Jesus revealed God's righteousness. In Romans 3, Paul wrote that the sacrifice of Christ was in order to show the righteousness of God. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you know how marvelous and how wonderful the Savior's love is for you this morning? Has God's salvation been personally applied to your life? This only happens whenever you hear the good news of God's salvation and you respond in humble dependence upon him. It only happens when you recognize that he is the great warrior who has defeated sin and death and hell. 
And the only way not to be destroyed by him is to surrender to him. This is repentance, renouncing your former allegiances. This is trust, joyfully submitting your life to a new king. Have you done this this morning? If not, I pray that you would know the Savior's love this morning. For those of us in Christ, we have a wonderful story of salvation to tell. We have abundant reasons for joy. Why then do we so often struggle with joy, do you think? What's going on when our joy tanks are not full and we mope around on fumes? For many of us, 2020 has been a year of uncertainty and frustration and unending bad news. All of that on top of the normal struggles of life. But joy is not dictated by our circumstances. Joy is a disposition of the heart that is true despite our circumstances. If your joy gauge is on empty, maybe we need to evaluate what we're putting in the tank. What is coming into your mind through the things like news and TV and social media and the internet? For example, in a recent book about the news, a social commentator observed this. He said, in modern societies, news has replaced religion as the central source of guidance and the voice of authority. In developed economies, news now occupies a position of power at least equal to that formerly enjoyed by faith. We approach it with some of the same sort of deferential expectations we would have reserved for religion. From the news, we hope to receive revelations. From the news, we hope to learn who's good and bad and to fathom suffering and understand the unfolding logic of existence. I know for me that the more time I spend uh, listening to the news and on social media, the more anxious, the more frustrated I become, the more things I can find to complain about. But I think Psalm 98 is encouraging us to purposefully and regularly be shaped and to be stirred by the good news of God's great acts of salvation. Just think, what if instead of exchanging complaints about world events, your conversations involved exchanging the victories that God has recently accomplished in your life? What if the conversations in the hallways involved us asking, what marvelous things has the Lord done in your life today and this week? What victories over sin can we celebrate? How have we experienced his steadfast love and faithfulness in our family? How would your home be different if you spent intentional time at the dinner table in the evenings, uh, recognizing and reflecting on the many ways God has been good to you over the course of that day? It takes a lot of effort to train yourself to recognize those instances of mercy and salvation. But let me encourage you to spend personal time, and even with your family today, and ask those sorts of questions. What's the Lord doing among us? What victories can we celebrate? How has he been showing his steadfast love and faithfulness to us? Because it's only whenever we fill our hearts and minds with the glories of Christ that we will respond with joy. And that's exactly what the next section of Psalm 98 is all about. Look at verses 4 through 6. Here we are encouraged to express our joy in the world, to the world, and to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. 
Look at the ways that Psalm 98 encourages us to express our joy in the world. We're to do it through singing and through music. Did you know that uh, the command to worship the Lord in song, to sing and to praise, to extol, to exalt, when those are all taken together, that is the most common command given in all of Scripture, to worship the Lord, to praise Him in song. Isaac Watts said that whenever we sing, we breathe out our souls to God. And who is it that's singing? I think this is such a beautiful picture. The nations whom God defeated with his right hand and holy arm in verses 1 through 3, they're the ones who become the singers and the band celebrating their new king in verses 4 through 6. The instruments mentioned here, the, the lyre and the trumpets and the horn, they were used to celebrate military victories, and they were also used in the temple for worship. And so here's the beautiful picture. The conquered becomes the choir. Enemies in conflict become harmonies in chorus. And the weapons of war become instruments of worship. When instruments complement singing, it's a beautiful thing. But whenever they're out of sync, it's distorted, there's conflict. So we must all regularly do uh, sound checks. We must regularly tune our hearts so that our attitude of joy aligns with our actions of joy. So that our verbal declarations are in harmony with our visible demonstrations of joy. Word and deed animated by joy. So how can we do this? Well, think back. Jesus, on the night that he uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, he told his disciples, he told them to pray in Jesus' name to the Father so that their joy may be full. Remember, Paul said that if you have the Spirit, he told the Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, one of them will be joy. And Peter wrote that in Christ, we can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So how can you be a person full of joy? It's only if you have the joy of Christ that comes from the Father and comes through the Holy Spirit. Let each one of us pray for this kind of joy, that kind of joy that is confident contentment in every circumstance, that kind of joy that is settled delight in God's beauty and goodness, that kind of joy that is deep satisfaction in God's holiness and truth. And let us be those people who spread that kind of joy to the world. Consider the opening verse of Watts' hymn, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. What a message we have to take to the world, and how desperately our world needs to hear it. Over 3 billion people, even now in 2020, have little to no access to the gospel. Nearly a quarter of the world's population resides in people groups that have less than one per 1,000 individuals who would claim the name of Christ. Thankfully, there's been amazing progress in recent centuries in the worldwide spread of the gospel. May we continue to participate in that effort and take the joy of the Lord to the world. Joy is the product of God's mission in our own lives, and it's also the means by which God accomplishes that mission through us to others. When our lives are filled with worship, they will flow with witness. Just think about it. Singing is this act of taking what's deep down inside of us and essentially pushing it out, forcing it out to the world. 
something that's very personal becomes public. And what is worship necessarily becomes witness to any who would hear. John Stott, he said, worship involves witness. And it's in the Psalms that the proper combination of worship and witness is most clearly and commonly found. For worship is worth-ship, an acknowledgement of the worth of Almighty God. It's therefore impossible for me to worship God and yet not care two cents whether anybody else worships him too. Because worship that does not beget witness is hypocrisy. He said we cannot acclaim the worth of God if we have no desire to proclaim it. And this brings us back, I think, to the primary motivation for our joy. We must remember that we ultimately direct our joy not to the world, but actually to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord. Verse 6. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And so just like salvation is from him and through him and for him, so is our joy. In fact, our joy is fullest when our joy is in him. The grounds of our joy is God's goodness. The goal of our joy is God's glory. What's the chief end of man? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the more joy we have in him, the more we will glorify God. And the more we glorify God, the more joy we will have in him. The tune of Antioch that we commonly sing, Joy to the World too. it was arranged using parts of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. At the end of his draft manuscript, I produced this on the notes if you're able to grab one uh, on the way in. Uh, on his draft manuscript for his Messiah Oratorio, Handel wrote the letters S-D-G before his signature. This is an abbreviation for uh, the Latin soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. This was also a common practice of his contemporary Sebastian Bach. These two composers, they created some of the greatest music in the world's existence, and they did so expressing their joy before the Lord and for his glory. How about you? Are you motivated by the glory of God in all things small and big? Well, how would you know? Well, what is your joy like before the Lord? Not what is it like before other members of the church or what is it like before your spouse and kids, but when you're all alone and all there is is your thoughts and your heart, what's your joy like? Do you love to think about God and how glorious he is? Does your heart well up with joy as you consider the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us? When you're all alone, how are you doing? Does your soul breathe out joy to the Lord? Would you say that the Lord is actually glorious to you? Well, if you've been faking an outward joy, then let me encourage you in that today. If you've been searching for joy in the things of this world, turn away from those things today. Let yourself be conquered by the great king and submit your life to his loving rule. There's no better time than to do it today because judgment is coming. And this brings us to the last section, verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. 
for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Verse 7 evokes the creation language of Genesis when it speaks of the seas and all that fills it, as well as the world and all those who dwell in it. Verse 8 adds the rivers and the hills. Verse 9 again gives the setting by speaking of the whole earth and the world. And notice how the three sections of the psalm, they expand in scope. It starts with Israel, expands to the nations, and ends up with all of creation. The picture that we're given is that the warrior of Israel becomes the king of the nations who then returns as the judge of all the earth. And if verses 3 through 6 tell us that God's praise should be given by human voice and instruments, then verses 7 through 9 expand that to all creation. One pastor suggested, setting forth the praise of Christ for the redemption of sinners, it not only makes work for all human creatures, but also if every drop of water in the sea if every river and flood, if every fish in the sea and every bird of the air, if every living creature on all the earth and whatsoever else in the world, if each one had the reason and ability to express themselves, yes, and if even the hills were able by motion to communicate their joy one to another, there is, a work, there is work enough for all of them to set out the praise of Christ. Another pastor said, where the benefits received are infinite, the praises cannot be extravagant. That's why Isaac Watts could pen, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. You'll probably remember the words of Paul in Romans 8. He said, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it would obtain the freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. At the end of the return of the king, J.R.R. Tolkien described the end of evil and the start of something new. Frodo's uh, faithful companion, Sam Gamgee, after the ring was destroyed at Mount Doom, he woke up, surprised to be alive, and he asked Gandalf a question. He said, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? John in Revelation 21, he said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. It's been easy to groan inwardly in 2020 in response to impeachments, elections, scandals, viruses, sickness, death, panic, shutdowns, layoffs, shootings, protests, riots. Aren't you hoping for a day when those things will come to an end? Aren't you hoping for a day when all things that are sad will be untrue? When God will keep all voices on key and all instruments will stay in tune? When everything will be restored to its original purpose and renewed so that it would flourish according to its original function? Paul in Romans made something clear to us that's left unanswered in Psalm 98. Namely, how will the justice of God be accomplished? Look at verse 9. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
a righteous and equal justice will result in the condemnation of all. And yet we have cause to rejoice. Why is that? All are cursed, but Christ still comes to make his blessings flow. Watson, verse 3, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. We live in a society that's crying out for justice. Criminal justice, social justice, climate justice, racial justice. But when considering any kind of justice, we must ask several fundamental questions. Justice by what standard? Enacted by what actions? On what timetable? And for whose glory? I think our society wants justice on the standard of public opinion. Enacted by being shamed and canceled on social media. Our society wants immediate justice as they cry that justice delayed is justice denied. And they want justice to glorify human progress. But as Christians, how do we respond? How do we think about justice? Well, for us, the standard of justice is God's righteousness alone. The instrument of justice is the cross of Christ. The timetable for justice is his soon coming return. And this is all for God's glory. We celebrate the justice of God because we see the glory of God's righteousness on the cross. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested in Jesus Christ. Jesus has took God's judgment upon himself on the cross, and in so doing, he has showed us that God is just, that he is good and holy and righteous and true. And Jesus has showed us that God is the justifier, the one who makes sinners holy, because he forgives their sin and because he gives them the righteousness of Christ. It's easy to hope in the righteous justice of God to fix the evil of others. But a righteous and equitable justice also includes the deepest and darkest and dirtiest parts of each one of us personally. If you've not taken refuge in Christ's salvation, then you have no ground to have joy in his coming justice. And verse 9 gives us this picture of his future um, in the future coming, a future that's before the Lord, Coram Deo, in which all things are laid bare before him. For those who are outside of Christ, coming justice means judgment. But for those who are in Christ, coming justice means joy. This is captured by Watts in the last verse of Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. A few years after publishing Joy to the World, Isaac Watts wrote a book entitled On the World to Come. In it, he said this, When the great appointed hour is come and Jesus shall return from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, then he will call up his saints from their bed of dust and darkness and make the graves resign those prisoners of hope. Then they will all gather together around their Lord, a bright and numerous army, shining and reflecting the splendors of his presence. And oh, how will the judgment of flesh and sense be confounded at once and reversed with shame? They will ask, is this the man who was loaded with scandal? Is this the one who was buffeted with scorn and scourged and crucified in the land of Judah? Is this the one who hung on the cursed tree and expired under, under agonies of pain and sorrow? Yes, 
Yes, it is. How majestic and how divine his appearance, the Son of God and the King of glory. Jesus will return as king and judge. John described him in the Revelation as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. The lamb who was slain will return as the lion to reign. Jesus is coming, and that means justice is coming. So let us fix our eyes upon him, and let us set our hope upon his coming. So come to Christ, he who has done marvelous things. Come to Christ, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Come to Christ. God has worked salvation for him by raising him from the dead. In Christ, God has made his salvation known. In Christ, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. In Christ, God has revealed his steadfast love and faithfulness. So let us be those who sing a new song. Let us be those who make a joyful noise and sing praise before Christ, our warrior, our king, and our judge. For he has come and he has brought joy and justice to the world. And he is coming again. The Bible ends with Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would grant us your salvation. Give us your hope. And give us joy. Do it all for your glory. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, so since Jesus has not yet come, we'll have the ushers come uh, to the front, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This morning we've seen that Psalm 98 encourages us to reflect on God's salvation in Israel, in Christ, and in our own lives. We've also been encouraged to express our joy as we live in the world, as we go to the world, and ultimately as we rejoice in the Lord. And Psalm 98 encourages us to hope in God's justice, for he will set all things right because of the cross of Christ. On the night that Jesus celebrated the first Lord's Supper, he instructed his disciples to pray so that their joy would be full. And as the ushers continue to go through the rows, I want to read a prayer that I came across. Uh, this prayer is from several hundred years ago, but it's just a prayer for joy. And I want to pray it on our behalf so that we would be a people full of joy. So as the ushers continue to pass out the elements, I'm going to read this prayer for all of us. O Christ, all your ways of mercy tend to an end in our delight. You wept and suffered so that we may rejoice. For our joy, you have sent us the Comforter. You have multiplied your promises. You have shown us our future happiness. You have given us a living fountain. You are preparing joy for us and us for joy. And so, Lord, we pray for joy. We wait for joy. We long for joy. Give us more joy than we can hold, desire, or think of. Measure joy out to us in our work and at home. And Lord, if we weep in the night, give us joy in the morning. Let us rest in the thought of your love 
your pardon for sin, our title in heaven, our future unspotted state. We are unworthy recipients of your grace. Lord, we often disregard your blood and we slight your love. And so this morning we repent and we now draw on the wells of your joyous forgiveness. Let our hearts be set towards our eternal Sabbath where the work of salvation, redemption, sanctification, and glorification is finished and perfected forever where you will rejoice over us with great joy. O Lord, there is no joy like the joy of heaven, for in that state there are no sad divisions, no unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, or toils of duty. O healthful place where none are sick. O happy land where all are kings. O holy assembly where all are priests. Bring us speedily to the land of joy. Amen.